All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be concluding our discussion of the dementia syndrome and its various etiologies. A special thanks once again to Dr. Christopher Wood for looking over the content of this episode. All right. In the last episode, we started with a little background information defining dementia. Then we discussed the two primary non-neurodegenerative dementias, normal pressure hydrocephalus and vascular dementia. And then we spent a fair amount of time discussing Alzheimer's disease because of how important it is. So now let's just pick up right where we left off, continuing our discussion of the neurodegenerative causes of dementia. The next etiology we'll consider is, well, we'll actually do two at once because they're closely related. These are Lewy body dementia, also known as DLB for dementia with Lewy bodies, and Parkinson's dementia. Parkinson's disease is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder and will almost always result in cognitive symptoms at some point. The difference between these two diseases is when that happens. If the motor symptoms are going on for years before any dementia develops, then the dementia that eventually does develop is considered Parkinson's dementia. On the other hand, if dementia and motor symptoms develop within one or two years of each other, then you've got Lewy body dementia. So you can see there's a spectrum here where borderline cases are possible, with the distinction being neither easy to make nor important. I'll talk about dementia with Lewy bodies, but all of the following basically holds true for Parkinson's dementia as well. Alright, after Alzheimer's, dementia with Lewy bodies is the second most common neurodegenerative dementia. Note that I didn't say the second most common cause of dementia overall, that would be vascular dementia after Alzheimer's, but of the neurodegenerative causes, dementia with Lewy bodies, or DLB, comes in second after Alzheimer's. The protein to remember here is alpha-synuclein. Deposits of alpha-synuclein are what are referred to as Lewy bodies and serve as the foundation for this disease's pathologic diagnosis. And actually, that's why these diseases, DLB, Parkinson's disease, dementia, and even Parkinson's itself, are also referred to as the synucleinopathies. Alpha-synuclein is seen in the synucleinopathies. Like any dementia, the prevalence of DLB increases with age. It can progress more rapidly than Alzheimer's does. CSF findings are often not conclusive like they are in Alzheimer's. And DLB is almost always a clinical diagnosis made on the basis of the combination of Parkinsonian motor features and features of dementia, as well as a few other key features worth remembering. Visual hallucinations are the most important and memorable of these, but arguably coming in a close second is REM sleep behavior disorder. REM sleep behavior disorder is a fun parasomnia where the sleeper's natural sleep paralysis is lost and he or she acts out his or her dreams. Interestingly, REM sleep behavior disorder can appear decades before any other symptoms. So that's a good one to remember in addition to the well-known visual hallucinations. Other typical symptoms include fluctuations in attention, other sleep problems such as daytime somnolence, severe delusions, and a few other supportive features such as transient episodes of loss of consciousness, repeated falls, mood changes like apathy and depression, orthostatic hypotension secondary to autonomic dysfunction, etc. 
That's kind of a long list, but if you add the sleep problems, especially REM sleep behavior disorder, and the possibility of severe delusions to what you already knew about hallucinations and Parkinsonian features, I think you're doing pretty well. Another important clinical pearl to know about these patients is that they can be extremely sensitive to first-generation antipsychotics, for example, Haldol. They can have a neuroleptic malignant syndrome kind of response, which you may recall is a dramatic response featuring fever, encephalopathy, hemodynamic instability, rigidity, and associated myoglobinuria, etc. So these meds are contraindicated in Lewy body dementia. This is important to know because the patient's delusions and hallucinations may occasionally lead to behavioral disturbances requiring medication, but do not choose Haldol or any other first-generation antipsychotic, flufenazine, chlorpromazine, etc. I don't think any non-psychiatrists really use these anyway except for Haldol. Medications that are used in practice to treat both DLB and Parkinson's dementia do include anticholinesterase inhibitors, but their efficacy is not as well established as it is in Alzheimer's. If hypersomnolence is an issue, you can consider a stimulant, but for the most part, the high yield stuff here has to do with presentation, as well as the contraindication against first gen antipsychotics. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the synucleinopathy dementias. Let's move on to another big topic, frontotemporal dementia. This is a fun one because the behavior seen can be so extreme. There are actually different variants of frontotemporal dementia, and one of them is a language variant that primarily just affects either speech or language comprehension and doesn't affect behavior much. I'll discuss the language variant in a minute. But let's start by talking about the behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. These patients tend to have a family history of dementia and often present a little earlier in life than Alzheimer's patients do more in the 45 to 65 year old range, say, their overall progression can also be faster. ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, is strongly associated with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, occurring in as many as 20 to 30% of patients. And when it does appear, it can make the patient's neurocognitive decline even more rapid than it would already have been. So this can be a pretty damning diagnosis. Interestingly, the alterations in personality and behavior that are characteristic of behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia may precede any detectable cognitive impairments by quite a while, even years. So if you have a patient whose behavior is getting them into trouble, who performs perfectly well on objective assessments of cognition like the MOCA, then you should be thinking about frontotemporal dementia. The range of behaviors seen in this disease is pretty wide. Things like impulsivity, obsessive-compulsive tendencies, and impaired judgment on the one hand, things like apathy and emotional coldness on the other. The patient may go on spending sprees or engage in reckless eating. They may get into trouble with the law. Generally, they have poor insight into the disease, and clinicians will sometimes mistakenly diagnose these patients with psychiatric disorders like bipolar depression. The diagnosis is made clinically via detailed cognitive testing, typically performed by a neuropsychologist. Imaging is mandatory to confirm the diagnosis and will typically reveal frontotemporal lobe atrophy. That is to say, atrophy in either the frontal lobe or the temporal lobe or both, out of proportion to any atrophy that may be seen in the rest of the brain. If this isn't seen on initial imaging, one of those functional brain scans we mentioned before, 
either the FTG PET or the perfusion SPECT might reveal a pattern of abnormalities in the frontal lobe. Okay, so all of that was primarily about behavioral variants frontotemporal dementia. That's generally what people will be referring to when they say frontotemporal dementia. But you should be aware that there are language-based forms of this dementia as well. These can be divided into their non-fluent and fluent forms. In progressive non-fluent aphasia, the patient understands language but struggles to speak. In fluent or semantic dementia, the patient can speak perfectly well, the patient is fluent, with perfect grammar, but he or she struggles with language comprehension. The lines between all these forms of dementia may begin to blur over time, but they can be very distinct early on. For instance, many patients with these language-based forms of frontotemporal dementia are otherwise highly functional and continue to go about their lives and maintain their interests and care for themselves well for years despite significant impairments in language comprehension or production. Interestingly, many cognitive assessment tests, such as the MOCA, are quite language-based, so their scores can end up being far worse than expected given their level of functioning, which you may recall is the opposite of what is seen in behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, where their lives are falling apart due to behavioral disturbances, while their MOCA scores remain quite good early on. Okay, the last thing I'll say about the frontotemporal dementias is that in these language-based variants, as you might expect, you may see the left temporal lobe especially affected on imaging, this makes sense because the left temporal lobe is the part of the brain that controls language in most patients, in left hemisphere dominance patients anyway. Alright, I think that's more than enough about frontotemporal dementia. Nobody calls it Pick's disease anymore, by the way, so you can delete that from your memory bank. Let's move on to the final two causes of dementia we're going to discuss in this episode, Huntington's disease and prion diseases. These are relatively rare causes of dementia. In dementia, the big four, far and away, are Alzheimer's, then vascular, then Lewy body slash Parkinson's, then frontotemporal. So those are the main ones you should know and learn to distinguish. But let's go ahead and discuss Huntington's and prion diseases, because you may see a case or two of these at some point in your career, and they are interesting. Huntington's is an autosomal dominant genetic disorder caused by trinucleotide expansion. That is to say, too many repeats of the CAG trinucleotide. And alright, since we're mostly talking about Huntington's for fun, brace yourself for some digressions. As a point of trivia, other examples of trinucleotide repeat expansion diseases include Fragile X syndrome, Friedrich ataxia, myotonic dystrophy type 1, and several of the spinocerebellar ataxias. Let's also very briefly review what those diseases are. Fragile X syndrome is the most common inherited cause of intellectual disability and also features enlarged testes and a long face with a large jaw and large ears. Friedrich ataxia is the one that leads to degeneration of spinal cord tracts, resulting in loss of vibratory sense and proprioception, which leads to staggering and falling, and the patient eventually dies of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Myotonic dystrophy is kind of like Duchenne's or Becker's in that you see muscle wasting, though you may also see cataracts, balding, and testicular atrophy. And lastly, the spinocerebellar ataxias are a large group of progressive degenerative diseases 
that involve gait impairment and discoordination and frequently lead to early death. So all of those are trinucleotide expansion diseases and are actually due to errors made while the DNA strands are looping around during DNA replication. Read about it, it's kind of interesting. But all are trinucleotide expansion diseases and as such, all can feature the genetic phenomenon of anticipation where the disease manifests earlier and more severely in subsequent generations than it did in prior generations. But anyway, let's get back to Huntington's disease. Huntington's is, as we said, a trinucleotide expansion disease, and so it can also feature this phenomenon of anticipation. The pathology involves atrophy of the caudate and the putamen with resultant ex vacuo ventriculomegaly, the ex vacuo means the ventricles of the brain are only getting larger because surrounding structures have atrophied, not for any other reason. The symptoms of this disorder are, of course, dementia, that's why we're talking about it, but also very prominently motor. You may have heard of Huntington's chorea. Chorea is the neurology term for sudden jerky movements. Etymologically, the term derives from the Greek word for dancing, a similar chorea is seen in Sydenham's chorea, which can result from strep pyogenes, which is group A, strep, infections, and in fact is one of the major Jones criteria for acute rheumatic fever. I'm sorry to allow us to be distracted by all these parallels, but I actually think a lot of things sink in better when you do draw these parallels in medicine. You'll remember the genetic mechanism of Huntington's better if you realize that it's the same mechanism that is seen in other trinucleotide repeat expansion diseases, and you'll remember what Sydenham's chorea looks like better if you realize that it's the same jerky, purposeless dancing seen in Huntington's disease. So hopefully it's somewhat helpful to see these connections. There isn't a whole lot more I wanted to say about Huntington's anyway. It may also lead to problems with mood and coordination, in addition to the already mentioned dementia symptoms in Korea. There's no cure, of course, but tetrabenazine can be used to treat the motor symptoms and was the first drug specifically approved to treat Huntington's disease. It, tetrabenazine, can be used in other hyperkinetic disorders, Tourette's, tardive dyskinesia, hemibilismus, as well. Okay, we're almost finished with our tour of the dementia syndrome. There are some forms I haven't covered. Long-term alcohol use, for instance, is responsible for a dementia syndrome similar to Alzheimer's and a great many people. But the only form I'm still going to discuss here today is prion disease. Prions are very scary things, and a pulmonologist once mentioned to me the hypothesis that prion disease and other peculiar diseases may have extraterrestrial origins. I, in the mainstream scientific community, have our doubts about such claims, but the disease is scary enough that I can understand the sentiment. Anyway, prions are nothing more than abnormally folded proteins. They're not viruses, they're not bacteria, they're literally infectious proteins. This makes them resistant to standard sterilizing procedures, including autoclaving, which is scary since that's basically the most powerful sterilizing procedure we have, and unfortunately, these abnormally folded proteins can cause a rapidly progressive dementia if they get inside your brain. That's because in their abnormally folded form, they are A, resistant to degradation by proteases, the enzymes that would normally destroy misbehaving proteins, and B, they facilitate further misfolding of the same susceptible protein, 
leading to a positive feedback loop of sorts where more and more of the misfolded protein is produced. The word prion is actually derived from the phrase proteinaceous infectious particle, and that's exactly what they are. Prion proteins are known to cause several different diseases, such as Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or CJD, which is the main one to get familiar with, spontaneous 85% of the time and inherited 15% of the time, variant CJD, which is the one thought to be spread by eating beef from a cow infected with mad cow disease, gerstmann strassler schenker syndrome, probably didn't pronounce that right, or GSS, which is a very rare hereditary form. Another disease is called fatal insomnia, which starts out innocently enough as insomnia worsening over a few months. And finally, there's a disease called Kuru. Those are just the diseases that humans can get, but there are many animal forms as well, including not only mad cow disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy, which I just mentioned as causing variant CJD in humans, and I'm sure you've heard of, but also similar diseases in sheep and deer and other mammals. The distinctions between these diseases don't seem all that important when you understand that they all have the following features in common. They affect the nervous system, they're rapidly progressive, they have no cure, and they're always fatal. Rapidly progressive doesn't mean you die in hours or days, however. The timeline for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is more on the order of months to a couple of years. 70% of patients die within a year of their diagnosis. During their decline, you typically see ataxia in addition to dementia, which is fairly unsurprising considering that the disease's main histopathologic finding is a spongiform change in the gray matter. That is to say, diffusely scattered vacuoles or what look like holes in the brain, thus the term spongiform encephalopathy. Anyway, prion diseases are certainly very interesting, but relatively rare and low yield compared to the other dementias we've discussed, so I won't spend any more time on them here, except to point out that one of the ones I listed, Kuru, is the one that has been observed in cannibals in Papua New Guinea. They actually practiced funerary cannibalism, meaning they would eat their own deceased family members. They thought they were doing a good thing, releasing their family members' spirits into the air or something like that. Turns out eating human brains can be a big mistake. Alright, on that note, I think we've finally come to an end of our whirlwind review of the dementia syndrome, so that's a wrap. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review, or better yet, send a link to the podcast to a friend. Alright then, see you next time.